Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to Stagecraft, Variety's theater podcast, bringing you in-depth conversations with the stars and creators of the biggest shows on Broadway, off-Broadway, and beyond. I'm your host, Variety's theater editor, Gordon Cox. On this episode of Stagecraft, I'm talking to Lynn Nottage, who has not one but two Pulitzer Prizes on her mantle, one for her 2008 play Ruined, and one for Sweat, the play that marked her Broadway debut last season. Her latest, Malima's Tale, now playing at Off-Broadway's Public Theater, explores the illegal ivory trade from the perspective of its title character, who is an elephant. She's also a writer-producer on Spike Lee's Netflix series, She's Gotta Have It, which was recently renewed for a second season. Lynn is in the studio with me to talk about all that and more. Hi, Lynn. Thanks for being here. Hi, Gordon. Thanks for having me. Um, I, a lot of your plays grow out of extensive research process. You know, Ruined was inspired by time you spent in Uganda, if I remember correctly, and yeah. Sweat came from your research into the economic hardships affecting writing Pennsylvania. Was Did Malina's tale come from a similar process? Malima's Tale definitely came from research, but unlike those plays, I didn't actually have to go to the savannah mm. to do the research. Fortunately, this is a subject matter that has been widely covered, right. and even though it's widely covered, it still needs more amplification. Right. And how did you land on it as a subject of interest? Um, well, really, it, it came, came to me when I began a dialogue with um, Catherine Bigelow, who is the, a film, director. Di- a film yeah, director sure. who's really passionate about elephants and... She directed Hurt Locker she, and her, yes, back Hurt Locker to and, an awesome vampire movie, if I remember correctly. And Detroit yeah. and yep. lots oh, of... Oh, yeah, right, in Detroit. Yeah, yeah she's, she's a phenomenal human being and also a great director. And right. she said, I really want to do something about elephants. And I feel like the right medium is theater, but I'm not a theater artist. What? Did you ask her why? Um, because why, why why she thought theater was the right medium? For because that. I think that what what I personally love about theater is that you can have a very direct dialogue with the audience that it's much more implement, um, intimate and that you can build em- empathy very quickly. And I think she felt like film might be distancing and that we also might be able to tell the story more quickly. And I've been a longtime lover of elephants. Um, I have had sort of the privilege of going on safari many years ago and actually seeing elephants in their natural habitat. And I thought this is a fantastic um, idea. And so tell me about the research process then. Where did you... what? What did you look into and what did you learn that surprised you as you were doing it? 
Oh, the, the, since, since there is an abundance of research, uh, uh, National Geographic magazines, articles, documentaries, books, I just immersed myself probably for about six months to a year in everything that I could find out about elephants. And I think the thing that I really came away with is that they're not that dissimilar from us, that family is immensely important, that they mourn and they love in, in very similar ways to human beings, that they have these very close-knit communities that they build for, for life, and that they're able to have love affairs. It, did that factor into your decision to have uh, the main character be an elephant who is played by a human? Um, yeah, absolutely. It was part of it, and also the complication of getting a real elephant sure. onto the stage. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the lion can I mean, kind of yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but, but um, I and I didn't want it to be a puppet because I, as beautiful as puppets can be, I felt like it was really important for us to build empathy and for the audience to feel a deep connection to Malima. And so, tell us about how Malima is portrayed on uh, on stage. So uh, played uh, by Saren Gauja, who, yeah, who's uh, phenomenal. A lot of people will probably know from Fela the musical, right? Played Fela Kuti. Um, so so um, Saw um, plays the elephant and tells the elephant's story, but the story is really amplified also by Justin Hicks, who's a musician who creates the sound effects of the elephant to really give him sort of the, 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 the weight and the gravitas. Um, because when, one of the things that we think of when we think of elephants is their sounds, is just their cries. And so we really wanted that to be part of the landscape of this piece. And is... Saw doing anything physical to sort of convey elephantness? Yeah, he, he absolutely. Saw is, um, he, I, I will say, he fully embodies the elephant and has found this beautiful movement with the assistance of choreographer Chris Walker, who's trying to get him to bring the elephant to, into his body without imitating the elephant. So we didn't want him to be on on all fours pretending to be an elephant, but to capture really the um, the the essence of of the elephant and its majesty. Did you meet any elephants as you were working on this uh, on this project? I did not. Aww. And you know, and, and I have to say, thankfully, I haven't because I, I, in America, at least, we're slowly becoming much more aware of what it means to imprison an elephant. Right. So you don't see them in, in as many circuses. You don't see them in as many zoos. So I feel actually blessed that I haven't encountered an elephant. And so, when did when was the decision made that you would that the main character would be an elephant as opposed to another another human character? You know, never. I think the decision was made when I decided to write the piece that I wanted to tell the story from the point of view of an elephant. What happens to that elephant in the last moments of his his life, and then take the journey of this elephant as he continues to haunt the people who who are responsible for his his death. And. As you're going through the process of doing all the research, when do you, how and when, when and how do you decide what the story is? What do you feel like the story you want to tell in this particular play is? I mean, that's such an interesting question because I don't know whether I have a very good answer for it in this case. It's, I, I think I discovered the story as I began to write it down and think about where, who would have tell, touched this elephant? And I really wanted to show the, the, how many people are responsible for the actual killing of this beautiful animal. That it's not just the person who shoots the poison arrow, but it's all of the people who kill this um, elephant because of desire. And so I think that that's how the structure revealed itself. Did that feel similar to 
your other place? No, it's it's really different. When when people come and see, I I hope that they'll be pleasantly surprised that this doesn't feel or look like anything else that they've seen by Lynn Nottage. That it's a piece that's very poetic, and I I like to say that it's a meditation, even though I know that word really scares a lot of people. Yeah. I embrace it, and so when <laughs> I hear you. it, I actually think, oh, it's going to be something beautiful and something that I can meet in a, a very different way than a lot of theater that's being made today. Right. And there are uh, three other actors in the in the yeah the play, three right? yes and do they play do any of them play the, elephants well, they, as well they play a multitude I imagine yes. uh, of characters and I think part of the fun of the piece is watching how quickly they transform um, and and become people from all over the world and and sort of work with these wonderful accents and they're really agile and and quite amazing and I think part of the reason why this process has been so delightful is that the actors are. Are, are so creative and so willing to meet the work where it is. And what is it that you hope viewers take away from the play about the issues that it's touching on? Well, that's that's an interesting question. I think on one level, what I want people to think about is just um, the cost of, of ivory and how, um, in, in many ways in order to feed our desire that we're destroying the, our planet. In other ways, I want people to think of, of, of this on um, a more um, meta, meta level, is that it's not just about the ivory trade, but it's actually about the exploitation, exploitation of the African continent and how for hundreds of years um, this beautiful continent has been ravaged for human desire and human greed. And so I hope that people look at this play on two levels and they see one play which is really about the ivory trade and about an elephant, and on the other level is looking at, at, uh, at the exploitation of our environment and what we're doing to it, and in particular the African continent, because it is being ravaged for our desire. Do you ever hope, as you're writing a play, that it inspires... Uh, action and activism? Is that always something that's in your mind? I hope so. I mean, I, I hope that when people leave here that they th- think a little deeper about whether they have ivory in their homes, they think a little bit deeper about um, the, the, the clothing that they're wearing and where it comes from. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not someone who sort of backs away from activism and politics, you know, and I know that for a lot of people that that's a dirty word. For me, it isn't. I think in order for us to be global citizens, we have to be engaged on some some very profound level, and I'm an artist, and that's the way in which I engage. And last season, you made your Broadway debut with Sweat. Yes. And do you have a sense of how a Broadway credit changes the reach of the play or of your work overall? Well, I, I think that Sweat's going to have a very different trajectory than some of the other plays because, it, you know, when it's on Broadway, it won a Pulitzer Prize. So I think that a lot of regional theaters are going to be more inclined to do it. Right. And so I, it's going to go around the country in some ways that perhaps some of the other work has not. Right. And how, what's, your, what's your sense of how the Pulitzer affects the life of a play? Um, I think that the, the, the how how does it affect the life of the play? I mean, ruined. It's it's interesting because ruined also won the award, right. and I thought that in some ways it was going to amplify the life of that play. But um, a year after it won the Pulitzer Prize, it didn't have any professional productions. Why do you think that was? Um, one, I think it has a very large cast. I think in, perhaps thematically it's really tough. Perhaps it's right. because it has an African woman at the center of its mm. story. I don't know. Hmm. 
other than I, I was disappointed that the play hasn't taken the journey that I would hope. Oh, that's, I'm surprised to hear that, actually. That's, Me too. That's, that's, yeah. I'm surprised. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And for, I'm speaking of surprising, it was, uh, for many of us, surprising, um, or for a lot of people who maybe weren't paying as close attention, it was surprising that it was not only your Broadway debut, but also Paula Vogel's in the same season, yeah. which Paula, like you, is, you know, is a, one of our best known dramatists, right? Like it, and that fed into a conversation that we were in the middle of having about, you know, gender parity and diversity and kind of what's your take on where things stand now on the you know, Broadway it, scene and the theater scene? Well, it, it's interesting because I heard a, a statistic um, which hasn't been made public um, oh. yet okay. that um, we're doing much more, better in terms of gender parity in theaters around the country, which is extremely exciting. And I think it's because there's been a concerted effort to push theaters to do more plays by women and by people of color, and I think that it's beginning to bear fruit. Right, right. And there's also a feeling that it's increasingly hard for new plays that don't have a giant celebrity in the title to kind of carve out a life on the commercial landscape, right? I think that's true. I mean, how many new plays are on Broadway that aren't in not-for-profit theaters? Not that many. Not that many. I think that producers are really frightened um, to do new plays, but I I feel like that's kind of what theater's about. It's about walking to the edge, and 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 I just I don't know. It's it's it disappoints me that more producers aren't willing to take a chance on something that they read and love. There, there are some people in the industry who feel like. there is going to have to be an effort as more and more you know musicals come into Broadway and then continue to sit in houses longer and longer right that that a lot of people think that the industry is going to need to make a concerted effort to kind of preserve the Broadway like a spot for the Broadway play yeah. do you would you agree with well, that well I, th- I think that you're beginning to see not for profit theaters um, encroach in that space because yeah. they understand that if they don't that the modern American play may not ever reach the commercial stage. Right. And so you have places like Second Stage with their new... What Second Stage is Second doing, stage, I was going to bring that which up. Is, yeah. Which is d- dedicated in their mandate to producing work by um, American playwrights. Yeah, living American living playwrights, playwrights, right? playwrights, on which the Broadway is, stage. Which at is Helen fantastic. Hayes, at the yeah. fancy new Helen Hayes fancy, Theater. Well, yeah, the beautiful new Helen Hayes, and that's really important. Yeah. And you will see one of your shows there when you, I guess, presume, God, God when you willing, finish it, right? When God willing, I, I <laughs> You were one will. of the commissions, yes. yes. <laughs> I was one of, one of the com- com- commissions there. Yeah. But, but I think it's really important. Right. And you have um, Manhattan Theater Club and Lincoln Center and the Roundabout Theater, which understood that if they don't carve out these spaces, that the plays are going to die. Right, right. Are there... Can you imagine any other things that you feel like need to be... What other factors uh, could help kind of keep the Broadway play alive. I, manage, I imagine well, I arts say, and education is one of them, Arts right? and education, but yeah. I have to say, Gordon, from the other side where you sit is that the critics can help us. Yeah. And I feel mm-hmm. like they're not really helping to keep alive um, um, American plays. Yeah. And I think that diversity of the critical body is really important yep. because perspective and context um, help frame the shows and what right now the plays are being being reviewed by folks who may not know how to enter them and right. for me it's it's profoundly disappointing right. you know it's only it's it's the equivalent of only being taught by one type of teacher right and i think it's unfortunate yeah yeah that's really interesting um 
we were we were talking a little bit before we turned the microphone on about uh, your work on the Netflix series. She's got a habit yes. uh, on the first season, which you enjoyed. And I asked you, so when do you start work on season two? And your answer was, you know, I would have loved to have started work on season two, but Lima's tale fell right smack in the middle of the writers' room. And so I found myself having to... Um, it's Sophie's Choice. Yeah. <laughs> and Malima's you know, Tale 1, like right? Yes. <laughs> Did you enjoy writing for TV? Um, I really enjoyed writing for television in particular. I enjoyed the writer's room. Yeah. Um, um, and the group of people who I was with, because a lot of it, a lot of them were writers who I've admired, right. and people who I've really wanted to sit around the table with. And I got to work with Spike Lee. Yeah. Um, who's a master of his form and who is really deeply invested in bringing the story about a woman to the small screen. And in in a neighborhood, Fort Greene, Brooklyn, that has changed quite a lot in the 30 years since the film was released. Which, right? which is yeah. fantastic. And one of the great things about the writer's room is that it was only six blocks from where I live. And so <laughs> I, I could literally get up uh, half an hour before I was due there, get dressed, and get there. Right, right. <laughs> Which was the bonus. And were you... I know you're from New York. Are you from Brooklyn? I am from Brooklyn. Okay, I'm, yeah. I'm from a neighborhood that's adjacent to Fort Greene. So right. that's... Oh, you, so you really do know so that So I really right? do know that neighborhood. And, yeah. and I got to fetishize a neighborhood that I love. Right, right, yeah. And that um, part of that season involved one of the... One of the um, episodes tackled the election of Donald Trump and sort of yes. talking about that. Why was that important for the show to well, address? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because when we're in the writer's room, it hadn't happened yet. Wow, really? So Donald Trump was just sort of tramp, tr- tr- tramping, stamping yeah. around the country, all bluster. Yeah. And we were fearful of it when we were writing, and we'd often sort of chat about, well, what if this happened? And we felt it was really urgent to tell this story. But then after we finished writing, it it he got elected and so I think that Spike felt it was really important to, in some ways to respond to it yeah. because he felt like those characters would have an opinion right right yeah that feels unusual for or at least I guess it did at maybe before maybe this episode and then the new Roseanne reboot for, for shows to really specifically address the political uh, context yeah, but I, I feel like all more more of the shows should that's I mean, true yeah and particularly now, I don't know whether you feel this, but we're in such a restless time in which we all are, we're all feeling the implications of having this leader um, make decisions for us much more profoundly. Right. And and I feel, feel I just feel like my art has to be pushing back. If there's a season three for She's Got to Have It, would you want to be involved? Um, I certainly would be if they would have me. Yeah. <laughs> How did you start writing? I don't actually know the answer to this question, I realize. Um, I was... How did I start writing? I, I, I guess I began writing when I was really young, not consciously. I always wrote plays for my little brother, and we'd perform them for my parents and their <laughs> guests, and um, they were a captive audience, and what we got lots about? of good applause. Did... They were about princes and princesses and... I don't know, cupcakes and <laughs> <laughs> things that ch- that really ch- children are thinking about at that age. What does your little brother do now? My little brother is a Brooklyn DA. Oh, okay, so nothing to so do nothing. with the theater. He has nothing right. to do with the theater. No, I mean, he, he's someone who is a consumer of art, but he's not really ever been remotely interested in making art. Sure. And who are some other playwrights that you admire working today? Um, working today? Yeah. 
Yeah, gosh, I mean, the, the list is is endless. Um, I admire Paula Vogel, who was one of my professors. Yeah. Um, I admire a lot of, I mentor a lot of playwrights, and I'm really, mm-hmm. I always like to give them a shout out because I'm particularly proud of the, them, like Katori Hall. Oh, and, yeah, sure. And Betty Shamia. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Terrell McCraney and Marcus mm-hmm. Gardley and um, Antoinette Anwandu. Mm-hmm. Um, um, gosh, I feel like I could just <laughs> sit here yeah. and, and run off. But I just, I, and I don't say this because I'm a player, playwright writing now, but I really do feel like we're in a golden renaissance age in which there's such a diversity of voices right now that if you ask me this question, 15 years ago, what are the playwrights that you admire working today? It would have been much more difficult for me to answer, and I would have been really frustrated because it would have been a list of, by and large, men. But now I can roll off um, all of these people. I can say, you know, Chiara Hudis, who mm-hmm. is this brilliant writer. Also doing a show at the public. Who's also doing a show, show at the public. And I, you know, and I can rattle off the, the, the name of all, like just about everyone who's working in the building at the public right now, yeah. or any of the stages, and that just excites me right, right what else is on your plate these days so you've got really oh, missed god, out my god i feel a, <laughs> I, I wish you hadn't asked that because Wait, suddenly i just before. got a wave of anxiety you, oh no <laughs> and, and i may just like fall on the floor from like a panic attack but <laughs> is the involvement of Catherine bigelow does that possibly portend a movie version of malima's tale at some point or, you know uh, i i, I, I I would say Melina's Tale is really a piece, piece that's designed for the theater. And I'm deeply invested in being that piece and not thinking beyond that. Because I think too often we're asked, would you, would you like this to be a movie? But it's not designed for the screen. It'd be something other than this, which would be wonderful. Right. But it wouldn't be this. Right. And so tell me, what else? You've got all this stuff on your um, What else? Uh, I'm gearing up for a workshop of um, Secret Life of Bees. Right. Um, with um, um, Duncan Sheik doing the music yeah. and Susan Birkenhead and Sam Gold directing, and we're really excited about That's that. Exciting. And I'm working on an adaptation of the film Black Orpheus. Yeah, how's uh, that going? That's that's going great. Yeah. It's, I think it's going to be very exciting and fun and beautiful, and directed by George Wolfe. Right. Um, that and that music. That's bossa nova music from the film, is yeah, that right? Yeah, well, it's not a, just the film. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that it, originally it was a stage play with all this beautiful music that was created for that. So what you're going to see is a combination of some of the original music from the stage play and from the film. Interesting. And are you enjoying the process of writing the book for a musical, which many contend it's, is the hardest thing anyone's ever done? It's, it's, it's different. Yeah? It's really, it's, yeah, it's different. Um, in a good way. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what for you is the is the challenge that you're well, the, that you're the, the, the problem for, that you're I can tell you for that. me I mean yeah. just as as a playwright the challenge is just when I feel like oh I'm getting to the good part I have to surrender it and turn it over <laughs> to someone else who well, gets to have all of the fun but, true and true. so that's how book writing is I get to sort of write around all of the fun parts yep yep <laughs> but the good parts would not exist without you without the frame there, that's right? true yeah yes right, right. Yeah, so that's two musicals uh, yeah. moving along. Uh, two musicals, and and are you working on your? Have you begun work on the second stage play yet? Um, yes. <laughs> Can you tell me anything about it? Um, or, no, it's no. top right. secret. Oh, okay. Um, and when you when you start research for uh, 
for a play that you're working on, what is it? How do you choose? How does the subject catch your eye? Do you have a sense of like where your interest? Yeah, you know, I can't even t- yeah. tell you how it happens, other than, and I'm sure this is true of you, is that you read something that really interests you, and you think, oh, I want to know more about the subject. And the next thing you know, you've gone down the rabbit hole, and you've become an expert because you've read so much about it. And I think that that's how the idea, it's an idea that I literally can't shake. It's something that I become obsessed with. And I want to live with for a long time because writing the play, it doesn't happen instantaneously. It has to be an idea that you're invested in, not just for the time of writing, but then for production. So you spend a a, a lot of your energy with the subject matter, so it has to be something that you're absolutely 100% passionate about. You mentioned that uh, one of the reasons you gravitated toward theater is that, and that Catherine Bigelow gravitated toward theater for this Malimus, for Malimus Tale, or for the story that became Malimus Tale, is its ability to kind of generate empathy. Can you give me an example of that that you've observed with your own work? Sure. I, I think most recently I did this performance installation called This is Reading in Reading, right. Pennsylvania. Right. And related to sweat. Which is yeah. ready to sweat. Yeah. And um, it was a grand experiment. We didn't know whether it was work. It was a verbatim piece which drew all of the stories from the people in town. And the idea... And it was theater. And it was theater. Okay. And it was, a thea- it was a performance installation. It was theatrical. People came in. They sat shoulder to shoulder. But in... In, um, in Reading, Pennsylvania. In Reading, Pennsylvania. Right. In in this abandoned train station, which was the Franklin Street Reading Railroad. And it was at a point in town which most people were really afraid to go to, and it was Mm. considered to be quite dangerous, and it bridged downtown and this other neighborhood. And we brought these folks who aren't used to sitting shoulder to shoulder, black, white, Latino, to see this story, which basically is the story of their city, and it's one tale. And it was magical. Mm. And this is not an exaggeration or hyperbole. It was magical to watch how those people sat down next to each other with some form of resistance. And by the end of the piece, we ended with the celebration and dancing and how people danced with each other and wanted to linger and stay and talk to each other. And I thought that's what theater is supposed to do is is really shift people's perspective. And, you know, and I, I say that it does that when I'm sitting in, in a Broadway theater or in some other theater, but I actually saw it working. And I thought, this is why I do it a great place to end. Uh, We can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you, Lynn. Thanks for chatting. Great to talk to you. That was Lynn Nottage, the two-time Pulitzer winner whose latest play, Malima's Tale, is running at the Public Theater through June 3rd. On the next episode of Stagecraft, I talk to Lauren Ambrose and Harry Haddon Payton, the two stars of the critically acclaimed new Broadway revival of My Fair Lady. Until then, see you at the theater. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.